Well, today we're looking at Psalm 39. We'll soon be uh, closing in on a series entitled Worship and Wisdom, where we've been exploring Psalms and Proverbs. And the title of today's message is The Christian's Response to Suffering, Psalm 39. Uh, Carlton is out for a few days. Uh, they're going to go to the Creation Museum and then head up to Chicago for a uh, Thanksgiving Day parade. But um, as I started, when he asked me to preach this passage, and uh, I, I said that I would, and then I, I read the psalm, I thought, wow, I've been there. I've uh, experienced this passage through the school of hard knocks, so I'm thankful to be able to talk about it today. Um, so as we get started, we'll read the psalm together. To the choir master, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways that I might not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. And my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days, and let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath, Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth. For it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. So here's the apparent situation. David begins the psalm by confessing his temptation to spread his distress, to complain about his suffering. So he silences himself, especially to the lost. But I'm assuming from verses 1 through 3 that he wasn't silent only in the presence of of Israel and the lost, but also in the presence of the Lord as well. According to the end of verse 3, God finally uses his distress and anxiety to break him. And that's where he prays. Beginning in verse 4. And his prayer concerns the shortness of life, how fragile he is, how daily turmoil is really foolish, how spending all of your time building wealth for wealth's sake is unreasonable. 
And then the real break in the chapter comes in verse 7. Verse 7 through 13 basically outlines David's repentance. The evidences of David's repentance. So this psalm instructs us about suffering. It's David's journey of suffering written in a psalm. We see a progression here. We see the process of David's sanctification. And I don't know how he was suffering. The passage doesn't really say. But the fact that David opened his life to us in this way is really encouraging. I mean, think about what he did. He basically wrote a song. He penned this song and gave it to the choir master, Jeduthun, and said, Here, Jeduthun, we're going to sing about my failures in suffering and God's faithfulness. I mean, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? That's transparency. So as we said earlier, David begins the psalm confessing his temptation to spread his distress, to complain about his suffering. And we begin the psalm by seeing, first of all, David's distressing silence. That's the first, first thing we see in the first three verses. Now, if we just look at the first verse... We may miss that. That's the theme of the first three verses is David's distressing silence. But that first verse has some very honorable things in it. First of all, we see right at the outset that David says, I will guard my ways. Hey, there's truth in that. Because unguarded ways are usually unholy ways. That's good. That's an honorable thing. He also says, not only will I guard my ways, but I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. I'll guard guard my ways, and I'll guard my mouth. I'll, I'll guard what I say, especially in the presence of the lost. Hey, that's honorable. That's a good thing. But that's not really the point of the first part of this chapter. The main issue here that we're addressing in the first few verses is David's debilitating silence and anxiety. That's what we really see. Notice he says in verse 2 and 3, he says that he was mute and silent and held his peace to no avail and his distress grew worse. His heart became hot and he mused. As he mused, The fire burned. This is how some of us deal with anger. Not by shouting, but by stewing. And this is what is meant by David's musing. He was mute. He was silent. He was in a distressed silence. You almost get the sense from these first few verses that kind of a a madness is setting in. It was just like the issues and the thoughts and the circumstances of his affliction. It's just rolling around in his head over and over and over like an endless reel. And I think what you can get from this, what you kind of learn from these first few verses, is that madness can be produced by a prayerless life. David wasn't speaking to anyone here, especially the Lord. 
William Cooper, the great hymn writer, we sang one of his hymns last week, There is a Fountain. God moves in, in a mysterious way. He suffered greatly from depression and, and, and anxiety. And he did a great deal of study about depression and labored to deal with it. And through his study um, of C.S. Lewis, he worked on developing what he called self-forgetfulness. A sense of self-forgetfulness. C.S. Lewis reasoned that introspection destroys what matters most to us. The authentic experience of great things outside of ourselves. This is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, in introspection, we try to look inside ourselves and see what's going on. But nearly everything that was going on a moment before is stopped by looking at it. Oh, the danger of too much pondering our inner states. It distorts the bad and it suspends or even destroys the good. David had stopped speaking, not just in the presence of the lost, but he had stopped speaking to the Lord. He was prayerless. And because he was prayerless, he was hopeless. He was full of despair and anxiety. And Paul writes about this from prison. He says in Philippians 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He says that from prison. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in prayer, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul calls anxiety unreasonable. Why does he call anxiety unreasonable? It's unreasonable because Christians say that they believe that God controls, that He is sovereign, that He directs all things. All things. So that means if God directs all things, as Aaron said earlier, then He even directs what? He even directs the seemingly bad things. Christians also say that... After death, we go to a perfect place with no suffering, with no sorrow, with no sin. And we live there forever. That's what Christians say. That's what we say we believe. Alright? And so, that place is not even comparable to this world. When I was going through suffering, this was the reasoning that I used to convince myself to be joyful. Hey, what's the worst that can happen? I die and I go to be at rest with the Lord forever? That's the worst that can happen? Christian reasoning is this, and it's from the same book where Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's Christian reasoning. And so that's why he says it's unreasonable. Anxiety is unreasonable. But if there's still anxiety, what does he say do? He says, pray and let your requests be made known to God. So David was dealing with this kind of distressed 
silence. But beginning uh, at the end of verse 3, we see a breakthrough. Look at the end of verse 3. Notice he says, the fire burned and then I spoke with my tongue. That's what he says. So you get a sense that all of this was just welling up in David. And it was like a volcano erupted. It was like the dam broke. God broke David to draw his heart back to him. And that's what much of our affliction is meant to do. In affliction, God wants to commune with you. God wants communication with you. I can remember so many, not just prayerless days, but days where I was in that distressed silence just like David was, where I would go however long without saying a word. And I can remember the moment in Texas. I was out by the pool area and I had just finished walking. I was getting some strength back. Um, Some of the effects of chemotherapy were beginning to subside. And I was listening to music. I was listening to to the music of... uh, I think Jeremy Camp, he's the one who lost his wife to cancer, right? Um, And so he has all of these, uh, you know what I mean when I say faith-based songs, where you can tell that this dude has walked through the furnace. And as I was listening to some of his songs, I experienced this right here. Just everything welling up, the fire burning, and then I spoke with my tongue And I just repented for the Lord. And that's what suffering is meant to do. And so God broke his child to draw his child. David says in Psalm 119. I can't believe he says this. He says, it was good that I was afflicted that I might know your statutes. The psalmist in 116 says, The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, He saved me. Basically, he's saying when when I was broken, God saved me. Brokenness is a good thing. All of this talk about God God won't give us more than we can handle. Don't you hate that language? Because it's absolutely not true. God will absolutely give you more than you can handle. Because more than happy children, He wants holy children. And He wants broken children. God will absolutely do whatever it takes to have communion with His children. He desires for us to pray. So David had had come to this point. And then we see in verses 4 through 6 the substance of his prayer. At this point, he was asking the Lord to show him the brevity of life. He said, make me know my end. Then he goes on and he basically is elaborating on that. He says, Lord, make me to know my end. And I don't think he's necessarily saying, "Uh, let me know the number of days that I'm going to live, Lord. But I think what he's saying right here is basically, I think it's the thing of like relinquishing control. 
Don't you think that's what this is all about? It's a thing of relinquishing control. I think a lot of times we are unknowingly control freaks. And that's what David is praying about. That's what he is confessing. So much at the root of our anxieties, our anger issues, our trust issues, it really comes down to this issue of control. And it comes down to the issue of our expectations. And all of this doesn't line up. Our plans usually don't line up with God's plans. It's all about unmet expectations. In a sense, we've become inflexible. And this is what God is putting his finger on in our suffering. And David is starting to come to grips with this. He's he's coming to grips with the fact that life is shorter than he expected. He's realizing how mortal he is. He's realizing that there are no guarantees. He's realizing that God's plan is different than his plan. That basically we have no control. That's what David is coming to. And he's learning to relinquish that. He's praying about that. He's reasoning this out. He's talking to the Lord about this. I go to Houston in two weeks for scans. And uh, we were at the Thanksgiving thing over here. And uh, someone in our body has a family member who is also... um, waiting for scans and he said how do you how do you deal with the issue of anxiety you know what people call it scanxiety how do you deal with that and um, I said well I think it has to do with the issue of realizing that you don't have control and that you're simply waiting And you don't set up false expectations for anything. Because when I was in Texas, what I dealt with a lot was uh, people who tended to put hope in hope, if that makes sense. You hear that word hope thrown around a lot in the cancer community, don't you? And it's kind of a wishful kind of thinking. It's like, if I say I'm not going to have cancer enough, then I won't. I'll never forget sitting in the hospital. One of the uh, saddest examples of that that I experienced, it was after my surgery and I was recovering. And um, one of the ladies who was diagnosed with uh, sarcoma the same time that I was, we were in the um, sarcoma center the same day for the first time. And... She's no longer with us, but I had gotten that sense from her that really she hoped in hope itself. And so I I had wanted to address that with her and try to move her to more of a Christ-centered thing. She had kind of come from a, um, I think, kind of a Pentecostal background where I think if she said 
the certain right things in her mind enough that they would just happen. And I, I said, you know, Chanel, I, I'm not hoping in hope. I'm not just doing wishful thinking here. I'm hoping in Christ. That's my hope. And it was the saddest thing I'd ever heard because she said, well, I am. Almost in an abrasive, just, you know, bringing God down, lifting myself up kind of thing. Well, I'm wishful thinking. When we are in suffering, God is putting His finger on our expectations. And more than desiring, more than desiring uh, freedom from cancer, we should be desiring the Lord Himself. Unmet expectations is at the root of so many of our trust issues. Our expectations are not lining up with God's expectations and His plans for us. And this is where David is coming to. Suffering can really expose arrogant attitudes. We come face to face with the fact that we can't control anything. And God's sovereignty, although it's a, it's a beautiful thing, the truth is, if, if you've really suffered affliction... God's sovereignty is really a terrifying thing. It can be a scary thing. And our exaltation of ourselves can really be exposed when we suffer. This is really the point James is making with us. When he says, come now you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So, planning is good, but expectations, bad. As Christians, God calls us to be flexible, to hold everything with an open hand. That's my health, that's my life, that's my family's health, my family members' lives, that's relationships, material things. All of that is to be held with an open hand. Because God may remove that thing that you cherish the most, He may remove that thing from you. He may take that from you tomorrow. And being open to this is the hardest thing that we'll ever do. This is what He addressed with the rich young ruler, right? He had that one thing. He had that one thing. In verse 6, David also brings up the issue of turmoil. We've already addressed the issue of anxiety, but I think David right here is talking about Daily turmoil. And I think this is kind of an indicator of where we are spiritually. You want to know how you're doing? In regards to this, look at your life. Are you worshiping the Lord in your work? Or are you in constant turmoil? Are you worshiping the Lord in how you spend your time? Are you constantly fretting? 
Are you worshiping the Lord with everything? Your schedule, your checkbook, your relationships. Are you being purposeful? That's what this prayer is getting at, right? That's what it's leading us to. Paul says in Ephesians 5, he says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time, for the days are evil. So in verses 4-6, through six, David acknowledged God's control. And at the beginning of verse 7, we see that David repents. There appears to be a turning point here in verse 7. And we're going to look at all the evidences of his repentance. First of all, in verse 7, we see that David wanted God. He says, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. That's what he says. For what do I wait? My hope is in you. David wanted God. He has become, you see the progression in his walk? He has become more content in the waiting. He begins to look not for a transient hope that we talked about a while ago, hope and hope. He begins to look for a future hope, a purposeful hope, hope in Christ. He has moved from putting his hope in the thing that he wanted to putting his hope in God himself. Do you see that? I'm going to say that again. He has progressed. He has moved from putting his hope in the thing he wanted to wanting God himself. And that's the essence of worship and suffering. David wanted God. Another proof of David's repentance is in verse 8 and in verse 11. David says, deliver me from my transgressions. Do you see that? Deliver me from my transgressions. So he wanted holiness. He wanted to be purified. He says in verse 11, when you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. So in suffering, God is out to purify you. God is out to dash your idols. God is in the business in your suffering to kick the props out from under you. Peter says... In his epistle, he says, uh, this is in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's an invaluable blessing that our faith is tried and proved. I love what Charles Haddon Spurgeon says about this particular passage. He says, two things were laid close together in the Ark of the Covenant. The manna and the rod. And then he goes on to say this, and I think I put this up. This quote up here, he goes on to say regarding this first Peter passage, coming out of trouble, the Christian says to himself, yes, I held fast to my integrity and did not let it go. Blessed be God. I was not afraid of threatening. I was not crushed by losses. I was kept true to God under pressure. 
Now I'm sure that my religion is not a mere profession, but a real consecration to God. It has endured the fire, being kept by the power of God. Doubt is worse than trial. I'd soon suffer any affliction than to be left to question the gospel or my own interest in it. I reckon that the endurance of every imaginable suffering and trial would be a small price to pay for a settled assurance, which would forever prevent the possibility of doubt. Never mind the waves if they crash you upon this rock. Trials are like a fire. They burn up nothing in us but the dross. And they make the gold all the purer. Put down the testing process as a clear gain. And instead of being sorry about it, count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials. For this bestows upon you a proof of your faith. David wanted holiness. Another proof of David's repentance was that he wanted God to be honored. We see this at the end of verse 8. Look what David says at the end of verse 8. He says, Do not make me the scorn of the fool. Now, hey, I don't think this was just an image thing with David. Like, hey God, don't let me look like an idiot in suffering or like I don't have it together. I don't think he's saying any of that. I think he really has a heart of wanting God to be honored. For his life to not prevent God from receiving the honor that he should. I think David may have realized that he may, may have been the only viable witness in some people's lives. And so God, don't let me be a hindrance to that. You know, the old, you know people have said, uh, be careful how you walk because uh, you may be the only Bible that some people read. It's, there's a lot of truth in that. A lot of people aren't going to read the scriptures. They're going to see your life. And so I think that's what David is praying about. He wants God to be honored. Proof of his repentance. Another proof of David's repentance was that he wanted God's will to be done. We see this in verse 9. Look at verse 9. He had moved from a distressed silence in the beginning of our chapter to a worshipful silence here. He says in verse 9, I am mute, I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Now he said he was mute in the beginning of the chapter, but did you get the sense that his mute, his silence in the beginning was worshipful? It didn't seem that way. But here, it seems different. He says, I am mute, I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. So at this point, David is not only recognizing that God brought about his his affliction, but it almost seems like he's come to a point where he's not angry about it anymore. He's more accepting of it. It's almost like David has stopped fighting the Lord. He stopped battling the Lord's will. You almost get the sense that he's sitting in silence. That he's yielded. That this is a worshipful kind of silence. This is is not a distressed kind of silence right here. This is a worshipful kind of silence. Does it remind you of someone else? Does it remind you of Job? 
at the end, after God rebuked Job in chapter 40 by saying, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then what did Job say? Job said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. I'm silent. I'm going to sit before you, Lord, in worship and in silence. So David wanted God's will to be done. Another proof of David's repentance was that he wanted relationship. In verse 10, if you'll look there in verse 10, David says, Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. Now David is speaking boldly here. He's approaching God boldly, which we are told to do. In verses 12 and 13 he says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. For I'm a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I might smile again before I depart and am no more. Now these verses don't contradict what we've already talked about, what David has already prayed. These don't contradict that David wanted God more than the removal of the affliction. It doesn't remove that. It doesn't remove that David wanted the trial to produce holiness. It doesn't negate that. It doesn't remove that he wanted the trial to bring great honor to the Lord. It doesn't remove that. It doesn't negate that uh, he wanted God's will to be done. God wants us to pray. And he wants us to pray believing. Asking for things in prayer is a good thing. And it's the essence of relationship, which is really what I think this is all about. David is now communicating with God. Was he communicating with God before at the beginning of the chapter? No, he, he was all shut up. He, he wasn't saying anything. It almost looked honorable, but it really wasn't because he wasn't even talking to the Lord. And now he's speaking open to the Lord and telling the Lord what he really wants. Jesus says this in Matthew. In Matthew 7, he says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So I think David's repentance was revealed here through his bold relationship with the Lord. God can handle our questions. God can handle our requests. In fact, I think not being willing to ask really calls into question the relationship. And I hope that you are not fatalistic in your thoughts towards God. Uh, Aaron mentioned this briefly in his call to worship. And I hope you don't get the sense that we teach that here at Grace Fellowship. 
I hope you're not fatalistic in your thoughts toward God or prayer. Because have you ever thought before, well, if God is sovereign, then why should I pray? I hope you've asked yourself, I hope you think on those kind of things and wrestle through those things. Why do we pray if God is sovereign? I think we pray because of relationship. We pray because God has ordained that the way we receive good gifts is by asking. In other words, He not only ordains that, for example, we receive relief in affliction, but He also ordains that the way you receive that is that you ask. That's also why it's so important to be involved in intercessory prayer. Because I can remember a lot of times in Texas where it was hard to pray for myself. That was difficult. And I needed faithful brothers and sisters interceding for me. So we ask because of relationship. We are not fatalist. We believe that our God is a God who relates to us. Now as we close our time today, I want to bring back the title of today's message, which is the Christian's response to suffering. What does that look like? Well, truthfully, it probably looks like David's account. It's not real good at first. Paul didn't say he was content. What did he say? He said he learned contentment. And so we typically don't start out suffering well. We learn to suffer by looking to the one who suffered for us. And this is probably the most important part of what we're going to say today. Because you have to apply the gospel to the issue of suffering. The gospel tells us about Christ's substitutionary atonement at the cross. That means that in His suffering, He took your place. He took God's wrath for your sin. And so you are now free in Christ because on the cross, all of your sin was laid on Him and His righteousness was put on you. So we call that the imputation of Christ's righteousness, right? All right. So how does that apply to suffering? Simply this, that you don't have to suffer well for God to love you. You don't have to run to a 10-step program about how to suffer well for God to love you. That's what the cross is all about. That's what the imputation of Christ's righteousness is all about. Is that not only did He give you His righteousness, but Christ has already suffered well for you. Suffering in Christ is going to be the hardest thing that you will ever do. And unless you run to the gospel, unless you run to Christ and trust That He procures salvation wholly for you. It's not a 50-50 deal where He does His part and you do your part. It's that Christ does everything on your behalf 
to bring you to God. And then, in trial, He preserves you through that trial. He keeps your faith intact. And then, He lovingly draws you to the finish line so that when you die, you die in faith. From beginning to the end, it's all a work of God. Amen? Amen. Don't run to someone's Twitter feed or Facebook feed or blog roll. That's not going to support you in the flood. Run to the Word of God. And when you don't believe it today, read it again tomorrow. And when you don't believe it tomorrow, read it again the next day. And the next day. And keep just clinging to Christ and holding on and don't let go. Some of you will find salvation in suffering. And Christ will be the one to do it. David reveals to us here in Psalm 39 that a Christian's response to suffering is not good at first. That's what he shows us. He wrote it in a song for everybody to sing. We're usually not very God-centered. There's a lot of complaining, a lot of questioning, but God is faithful. That's the point. And any work, any fruit that's accomplished in our suffering, suffering is accomplished Through God's gracious Holy Spirit. I love what Philip Yancey says about suffering. And I put it up here for us to read together. You can't follow Jesus without confronting His death. What possible contribution could come from a religion based on an event like the crucifixion? Simply, we are not abandoned. Because Jesus came and took a place beside us, God fully understands. For whatever reason God chose to make man as He is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, He had the honesty and courage to take His own medicine. Whatever game He's playing with His creation, He has kept His own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not expected from, exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience. By taking suffering on himself, he has himself, I'm sorry, by taking suffering on himself, Jesus, in a sense, dignified pain. Of all the lives he could have lived, he chose a suffering one. God is not deaf. God is as grieved by the world's trauma as you are. His only son died here. But God has promised to set things right. And that's where we close. That's what we see in Psalm 39. That's what it teaches us. And I think that's what... uh, It's really perfect timing. Next week we begin celebrating Advent. And... um, That's what that time of Advent represents. The word Advent simply means coming. And so it's a time where we'll be celebrating 
the waiting, the coming of the Christ child and our subsequent waiting on Jesus' second advent, His second coming. And I, I hope it does for you what it has, do, has done for my family. I, I hope in the past that Advent has been a meaningful time to you, that it has encouraged you. And uh, I hope and I pray that it will bring hope, that it will bring renewal, that it will bring resolve, that Christ has not left us, but He's coming again. And when He comes again, He will take us to the new heavens and the new earth where we'll dwell forever with Him. Let's pray together.